I'm Leonard Nimoy. Join me for In Search of... An Artemis! Hello! Welcome again. Today we are recording on June 21st, the second day of summer. Happy Father's Day, belatedly, to all our listeners. Uh, I am here today with uh, my co-hosts, John Heinz and Shelley Cummings. Hi, John. Hi, Shelley. Hi, Jim. Jim. And uh, our frequent guest host, Peggy Bennett, is out rediscovering the Grand Canyon, which, if I understood an email she sent us, her, her grandfather or great-grandfather invented the Grand Canyon or something like discovered. that. That's Probably so discovered. deeply wrong <laughs> at so many levels, but let's just go with it. Well, I feel free in saying these things because I know since Peggy's not here, she will never actually hear this because she doesn't actually listen to any of these podcasts. It's true. So we can pretty much say whatever we want want about Peggy on this particular it's episode. True. Uh, it's not true. that we would do that. No, seriously, she's uh, out with her family, her mother and her husband, right? Out in, um, and maybe some other members of the family. No, her mother, husband, brother, and sister-in-law. And they're all out in the Grand Canyon, right? Yep, Yellowstone. And to the point about her relative. Yeah, I, um, I was, being, I was teasing, went, but there's a serious no, story there. It is true. Yeah, there's um, a true story. Lang- a true Langford story. is his last name. And uh, Peggy told me that uh, they were in a store or a bar or shop, I would guess bar, knowing Peggy, that uh, the person, when they brought, they were just chatting and the bartender, let's say, is the example, said, no way, you're related to him? Like they knew him out there, like the people that live there recognize that name. So it's real. So what we're what we're going to do today after we do the new top of mind segment is we're going to talk about Trump getting reelected. So should we do the top of mind first? What's what's first on your mind today this morning, John? I have been thinking a lot about the weather I had a student when I lived in Paris who used to, and I, I got up and made the kind of snide remark to him, to the class that I hated, the, I hated talking about the weather and thought it was trivial. And he looked at me with completely deadpan seriousness and he said, I like talking about the weather. And I suddenly realized, I was like, ah, maybe it's not so bad to talk about that. Anyway, we've had some wild weather here in Chicago in the last 24 hours with electric storms. And, and it's, it's been on my mind. And I just think it's, it's an absolutely gorgeous Sunday morning. And I'm thinking about how great it is to be outside. Nice. Shelly? What's top of mind today is Father's Day. And I know the listeners are going to be listening to this a little bit later than Father's Day. But my dad and mom are coming down just to spend the day with me. It didn't feel like we, my family got together last Sunday with my dad to celebrate his birthday and combine Father's Day, but I just didn't feel right with it, him being not with family other than his wife <laughs> on Father's Day. So I said, hey, why don't you guys come down? So I'm going to grill, providing I don't get rained on, and we're just going to hang out. <laughs> so my wish is, my, what's top of mind is Father's Day and, and wishing you two fa- happy Father's Day. Thank you. Thank you. So I get most of the books I read from the library, which has been closed since March. So I officially have run out of things to read. So I have been rereading my old, I have in hardbound copies, which I got when I was a teenager, every Perry Mason book ever written. So I've Ah. been rereading the old Perry Mason cases in anticipation that HBO, HBO show. has a reimagining of the Perry Mason origins that starts tonight. But anyway, with what's his face from uh, from with the Americans, Matthew Reese from uh, the Americans, oh and really, Tatiana Maslany from Orphan Black, and John mm. Lithgow. Love him. But in any event, which has kind of been fun, but I'm excited because the Arlington County, of Lo- County Library, which is not the Montgomery County Get Library where I live, but is over across the river in Virginia, but is also one of the libraries I use, is reopening, has reopened on a limited basis. On Thursday, I put in seven books that I want to read for hold, and I'm eagerly anticipating when the first one is ready to be picked up so I can go pick it up in Arlington and I will be back on the reading train. What can I say? That's great. That's awesome, Jim. Uh, right. So today we're talking about Trump re-election. The setting for this is relatively simple, which is that if any of <laughs> you listen to our or not. old podcast... <laughs> 
and we made predictions at the beginning of this year. Peggy, John, and Shelley all predicted that Trump would get reelected, and I predicted that Joe Biden would get elected president. And I'm feeling pretty good about my prediction right now. And I think Joe Biden's going to win the election in November, although anything is possible. And I wanted to uh, talk about why I think Joe Biden's going to win and why I think there's reason to be optimistic about that. John. Sounds good to me. So let's hear from you. Jim, you go first. Why well, is he going to win? Uh, well, let me just, uh, I, I, I don't want to turn this into a half an hour monologue because there's a lot of reasons why he will I, well, put it this I mean, way. I think there's yeah, a lot of reasons make why Trump choice. will lose. <laughs> there's a lot of reasons why Trump will lose more than why Biden will win. But uh, I would say that the polling would indicate that, the economy That's would indicate sure. that, and the history of recent, relatively recent presidential elections would indicate that. Okay, the Broadly polls are easy. Two. We know about that. Talk about the other two. So why, well, why would the economy the, indicate the that Biden will win? The polls are not as easy as you might think, but that's fine. I'll talk about the other two. So uh, we don't know what the unemployment rate is going to be next month. It's about 14% last month. It's probably going to go down, but the unemployment rate was about 4%, a little bit higher than that. Uh, a little bit over 4% during Trump's first full year in office in 2017. I'm sorry, I think it was 6%. I was 4% more recently. But the chances that the unemployment rate is going to get back down to 6% by the end of this year, I think most people would agree is pretty unlikely. It's going to stay high as long as uh, the economy is stalled by the coronavirus, which is largely something beyond anyone's control, of course. In, since, the end, since World War II, there have been three presidents who were defeated for re-election. If you count Gerald Ford, who wasn't actually elected, but was the incumbent because he took office when Nixon resigned. In all three of those cases, the unemployment rate was higher during the year of the presidential election than it was during their first full year in office. In every other case since World War II, when a president has run for re-election, with one exception, they've won and the economy was the the unemployment rate was lower during their re-election year than it was during their first full year in office. Like for example, uh, the unemployment rate was above seven percent when Barack Obama ran for re-election in 2016, but it had been at like nine point something percent in 2013. The only exception to that was Nixon in '72, who won very easily won re-election, even though the unemployment rate was higher than it had been in 1969. So the mere fact of the unemployment rate and the state of the economy does not bode well for Trump or for any incumbent president to get re-elected. Well, does anybody want to talk about that first or questions about that? Okay. No, we'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. If we, I mean, I don't know. Shelly, do you have any? Do you want to, do you want to jump in or we just want to, I, I wouldn't mind just hearing you kind of lay out your three, I, okay. your three ideas right, and then right. we yeah. can go back so to the other it. Thing, let me talk about the polls a little bit, which is that the uh, real killer politics and the 538 have both established that the, the polling averages right now show Biden with a substantial national lead. Now, to be fair, at this point in the race, four years ago, Hillary Clinton had a substantial lead in the polls over Donald Trump. The difference is that it is very unusual for an incumbent to be this far behind at this point in the race. It's almost unprecedented over in post-war U.S. politics. Another way of putting this, a colloquial way of putting this, that Chuck Todd from Meet the Press said when I heard him on a podcast a couple weeks ago was, do you know, this is just an anecdotal, obviously, do you know anyone who voted for Hillary last time who's planning to vote for Trump this time? And the answer is, for most people, is no. And then he said, but there are people who voted for Trump last time who are definitely quite likely not to vote for him this time. So the problem is that 
the, what the polls reflect is that Trump has a base, but he hasn't built on that base. And the people that made the difference for him last time, the people who didn't like Hillary or were dissatisfied and you know wanted a change, decided to take a chance on Trump. And this is sort of maybe reflects on something Peggy said a few episodes ago, which is that, OK, maybe they took a chance on Trump four years ago. But now that they've seen four years of Trump, are they really going to vote for him again? Obviously, there are a lot of people that are going to vote for Trump again. And there is a base out there that supports him. But his own base is not going to get him is not going to get him to 50% of the electorate and uh, so that's another part of the problem why i think it's likely he's not going to win the election all right so it's all right so the, let me just the, the the one other one thing i wanted to say historically if I, if you want me to lay it out is i think there's some misunderstanding about 2016 which makes people either confident Trump is going to be reelected or fearful that Trump is going to be reelected, depending on their point of view. The first is there's a common perception that the polls were widely wrong in 2016, which is not the case. The final real clear politics average polls of the general election had Hillary Clinton ahead by 3.2%. And she, in fact, did win the popular vote by 2%. So it was the polls were pretty accurate in the aggregate in 2016. Okay. The other thing I want to say is, and people don't you know, remember this, but it's important. There were six states or seven states, I should say, where the electron was within 2% either way. And the coin flips that Donald Trump won happened to be for states with bigger electoral votes. Like he won four of those coin flips. Hillary won three. The three she won were worth 20 electoral votes. The four he won were with 69 electro, uh, 75 electoral votes. So that's what happened. The chances of that happening again in the same way, I mean, are probably not likely. If it's really close, anything can happen. If it gets very close popular vote-wise, if it doesn't get very close popular vote-wise, whatever advantage Trump may have in the Electoral College is going to be irrelevant. Mm -hmm. There are some other specific things I could go into, but we can wait to those later. That's my general case. Okay, sounds good. All right, Shelly, why is Trump going to win? So first of all, I'm taking this stance because I want to be true to the title of our podcast in search of an oh, argument. Heck yeah. So agreed. These my position does not necessarily mean <laughs> I endorse or um, <clears throat> any of my. You're my certainly prepared. not endorsing Donald Trump. <laughs> let me put it that way. All right. So I actually had a few arguments prepared. One was the polling. I knew I figured Jim was going to come out with something about the polls and I and maybe it's my faulty memory but I I this was one election that I stayed up till well after midnight watching the votes come in and seeing how this um was going to end and you know right up to the end the polling and the projections had Hillary winning as my memory is and I understand Jim when you said the aggregate of the poll I understand the distinction I should say but my my feeling is I just number one I, I don't necessarily see the point of the polls even though I get I mean I do but when it comes down to it I feel like it doesn't matter cuz it I feel like sometimes the polling might sway somebody who might be on the fence because they're going to see how the majority are going but they're you know do we really want those people voting um do we want you know we want people who have understand the issues between the two candidates so I I felt like polling almost should not be considered into decision, if you you know what I mean, because it it just seems like it has the potential to sway people who might be the people that I know everybody gets to vote. And I I, I truly appreciate that we have that opportunity in this country. But it feels as a way to persuade those that are on the fence. Well, that's interesting. And obviously, the there are if you Nate Silver can spend hours explaining theories of polling and knows way more about it than I do, obviously. I think in general, there is evidence that polls do sometimes influence how people vote and how people react. But 
it's not necessarily clear. There there are some people who react opposite to the polls, and there are some people who are swayed by the polls. I also think it's important, and to put my Nate Silver hat on, to say polls are snapshots, right? They're asking people what they think today. There's no guarantee that what they think today is what they're going to think tomorrow is going to what they're going to think next month is what they're going to think in, you know, 19 weeks when the election is actually held. So that's also important. It, you know, a Opinions do change. Events happen that change things. Obviously, when I predicted in January that Biden was going to be elected president, I knew because it was going to because I knew that the coronavirus was going to happen and all these things were going to get shut down and that was going to hurt Trump. But and I'm being facetious. You knew that? No, I'm being facetious. The point is. Oh, okay. (laughs) The point is that you don't know what's going to happen and events can happen. And obviously, the coronavirus was not an event that was on anybody's radar. Maybe it should have been, or maybe, you know, that's a different topic, but it wasn't on anybody's radar back in January when we were projecting what was going to happen politically this year. But obviously it has a tremendous impact and polls are snapshots. The distinctive thing that happened in 2016, which to be fair again, and to invoke Nate Silver again, is he actually wrote about this before the election, which is the polls are fairly clear that Hillary has a narrow lead in the popular vote. But the way things are stacking up, there is a chance she could win the popular vote and not win the electoral college. He didn't say Mm -hmm. that was definitely going to happen, but he said there's a definite chance that could happen. And that's in fact what happened. The polls were fairly accurate about the popular vote. Part of the problem is that state polls, and again, this is probably beyond my ken to fully explain it, so you should tune in to Nate Silver's podcast, but state polls tend to be not as accurate as national polls. For one thing, there are just not as many state polls as there are national polls. So when you aggregate them, you don't have as reliable a sample to deal with. Shelly, so just jump, jumping in there. So Shelly, you're, you, but your point about the polls is just that there's a, regardless of their truth or the the accuracy of them, it's just there's a perception that you that of there's a perception of, of voters that affects voting in a way that maybe makes them not very useful. Is that what I heard, was hearing you say? Yes, and I and I feel okay. like the, the people that might be paying, and this is just you know a thought. I feel like the people that might be paying attention to the polls put a great value in them because they feel like, oh, these are the experts. I'm not so sure of what the issues are, but we've these got we have these people that are you know putting out these polling numbers. So I'm going to follow their lead since it seems like that's the way the other but people in the country are tracking. I mean, Shelly, I can't I can't say that people don't say that. But I mean, when you read a public opinion poll that says X number of people think this, does that change your mind about what you think? No, but I know people that it does. Okay, Like, you know, and it's it's like people. Yeah, it doesn't change my mind. I mean, I don't know. You can't ban polls. I mean, they're just a no. different source of information, wait, right? Wait, Jim, can we, I want to get through Shelly's other arguments. I don't want to. We're spending yeah, okay. too much time right, on polling. That's fine. that's fine. Let's hear more. What else, Shell? What else, what other reasons are Trump going to win? Let's let's so get back the, up a little bit. I want to finish this one thought. Uh, oh, okay. Is that even though people who voted for Trump in the past and have has been in there for the f- last four years, and you th- think he might, they might not vote for him now. That does yep. not mean they're going to vote for Biden. They just might choose, I don't like any of my candidates and I don't want to vote. And I know probably the older population, you know, those in Florida, Pennsylvania, Arizona and Michigan, which I think I think those states have <laughs> those generally are an older population. States in the election. Yeah, I know. But and, <laughs> but and I think, you know, I think. Trump probably alienated those folks by trying to get the economy back up faster because Who's of- Mitt Romney going to vote for? Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, he, yeah. he said last time he wrote in his wife's name. That's what I heard. I mean, Who's yeah. George W. Bush going to vote for? I don't know. He's not going to vote for Trump. That seems clear. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is he going to vote for Biden or is he going to write somebody else? And I think that's to Shelley's point is they, they aren't necessarily going to vote for I understand that. But you also have to understand that if enough people that normally vote Republican don't vote for Trump, that's going to make it easier for even if they don't vote for Biden. I mean, it's the election is a is a you know, you you don't have to win by 51 percent. You have to win by the plurality. So. uh, Right. 
I hear it would you. be better for Biden for the Democrats if he voted for Biden. Colin Powell is voting for Biden, so you know yeah. that's yeah, one. He's come out and said that's it. Yeah, one that's Republican yeah. vote. I All feel right. the other big thing that Trump has his in his corner is he is an unapologetic nationalist. You know, from making uh, uh, "Make America Great Again" and "America First," and though that's going to appeal to a lot of people and it's going to appeal to the pro-life Christian conservatives that he is putting America first by, you know, reducing the tax burden, promoting or rescinding uh, DACA, D-A-C-A. Although DACA, just to just to yeah. further inflame your outrage about polls, DACA actually <laughs> polls is being pretty popular with most people in the country. But go ahead. But I mean, his actions are in general more pro-American. Like, let's get America back on track again before we engage in you know helping the Middle East or uh, doing things with China. You know, and all of the you know sanctions he's putting on China. So I I feel like that is going to definitely speak to a population of people that feel like we've lost our edge in the world. And, you know, those voters that, you know, want to elect a president with a different agenda, you know, it could be a president that, uh, you know, a president who treats and criticizes or treats citizens and non-citizens equally, you know, sure, they can do that or they might or who defers to the international community on matters that might involve really national security or inhibits the growth of the economy for nobler nobler goals, uh, you know, that help help the world in general, but might not help America. They everybody has that prerogative, but I feel like there is a large percentage of the population that wants America to get back on track or feels they've gotten off track because our focus and interests have been in other world environments that we might not have any business being part of. Mm-hmm. That, that well, was my d- biggest argument. Okay. We'll talk about... talk I, the, the thing neither one of you talked much about, I'd like you both to talk about a little bit, is about the effect of kind of strategy and media, media strategy and communications. Because if nothing... I don't... For, for There's no question in my mind, one of the things I notice is Biden, every time he talks, I, I cringe at how he sounds. And and Trump, for you know, he speaks in sound bites and he says things that people want to hear, you know, or his base wants to hear. And I remember when I had, uh, I was, I had this 20 something guy, a friend of our uh, family staying over here for a while. And he was, he, he, I remember him off the cuff one day saying, you know, Biden, man, he's so old. Trump, what is he like, 50? <sighs> and I'm thinking, and I thought to my, I was like, ah, that's completely wrong. But it's, there's something, and he, he, he said, he says something about the way he talks that makes him sound younger and makes, and it's ridiculous to me, but it's, I, but I know that's out there. So I'm wondering what you both think about the, what's, and Jim, this, in some ways, Jim, this runs directly counter to what you're saying about history, because a lot of your arguments, Jim, rely upon the history of polling and the history of elections. And I'm, I think it's there are the a lot of people arguing have. that we're obviously I know, but I think yeah. a lot of people are arguing that we're out of history right now and that that's what that Trump represents a, a bright line between the way things were and the way things are or maybe will be at some kind of a fascist future. But the uh, <laughs> and it seems to me a part of that is something about media strategy. So I'm curious how you both think okay. what, what you think the Before impact is of the media strategy. strategy I th- I want to pick up on the point you made about Biden and also the point Shelley made earlier about because people don't like Trump doesn't mean they're going to vote for Biden. I think that it is unquestionable that Biden himself is not a particularly great campaigner, okay? He's not Barack Obama, he's not Bill Clinton, he's not Ronald Reagan, whoever you want to use as an example of a really effective political campaigner, right? Or John Kennedy, if you want to go back, you know, a long time ago. He's not one of those guys by any stretch of the imagination. Now, Trump... Because his media, because he can't talk, because he he doesn't speak. But, you know, by those standards, Trump isn't in the league with those people either, honestly, right? No, right. I mean, you know, look, Hillary Clinton, and I... Huge supporter of Hillary Clinton's, and I enthusiastically voted for her, and I think she, you know, should have been elected and all that jazz. Was not a great campaigner either. Okay, Biden is a worse campaigner than Hillary Clinton was, for sure. But what does Biden have? 
Well, for one thing, the coronavirus helps him a lot because it's given him an excuse <laughs> to basically stay out of the public airwaves for the past three months. And believe me, if there's anybody who's got brains on there, they're going to milk that as long as they can, right? Because the longer he stays out, the less chance he is to say stupid stuff. So your core argument is he's the non-Trump. Right. And I even said that. I even That's said why that he's going to win. On a previous okay. podcast, he should change his name legally to not Trump. So on the ballot, right. people will get the right. choice between Trump and not Trump. If that's the right. choice, the clearly, and it, it, there have been many articles written about this in the Washington Post and the New York Times, et cetera, that clearly the Republican strategists who work for Trump, whether it's Trump himself knows this or not or understands this, understand that the key to winning this race for them to have any chance to win is if it's a referendum on Trump. Like, do you think Trump should still be president? They're not going to get 51 percent of the votes to say yes to that. If they, they have to make it Trump may be bad, but he's not as bad as this guy. That might be their strategy. But I, I feel like it by him being silent and taking advantage of the coronavirus to, and, and Trump's overuse of Twitter, I feel like that there's that then then people don't know him. People don't. People know him. Believe from me, the blo- that works the to his favor. What did John say? Every time he hears Biden speak, he cringes. Is that what you said? Something like that? Yeah. I mean, Biden's not a great campaigner. He's not going to win a lot of votes by talking. He's going to win a lot of votes by not being Donald Trump. He's not the dynamic alternative. He's the least objectionable alternative. I feel like that. Um, it, I find it interesting that you projected in January that Trump would not win uh, or Biden would win pre-COVID-19. But if you if you look at everything that took place before COVID, I mean the economy was doing amazing. You know, t- talking about the the tax breaks that went to middle America, which was it was huge. Uh, the reduced military deployment, all of these other very positive things. If COVID hadn't hit and the poor response that was made with COVID, whoever whose fault that is, whether it's the World Health Organization or CDC, whoever, um, I, I feel like everything has shifted because of this you know, natural pandemic that we have. But prior to that, I'm still baffled why by I thought your he would lose. selection. I mean, I for, did for have all the reasons you messaged, all the reasons you mentioned, honestly. Right. No, I, I will tell you that my my prediction was based not on the one of the reasons I feel better about my prediction now is because now I feel like I have data to support my position. My, but you wouldn't have that data if COVID hadn't hit. Right. I well, okay, then let me explain. I'm trying to answer your question. The reason okay. I felt the way I did was I felt that and this was my gut instinct, I guess, if you want, that Trump was has never been a particularly popular president. So I felt like there was, unlike some other presidents who have been popular personally, who can withstand, they have a certain reservoir of trust. My feeling was that things happen and things would happen. And I did not know the coronavirus should happen, but I thought things will happen and Trump doesn't have a reservoir of popularity and 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 people will he's going to he's going to eventually wear people out and people are going to be like we're sick of the circus we just want you know in 1920 Warren Harding famously was elected on a a ticket of return to normalcy and there's a there's a long strain there's a lot of people in the United States of America and probably in all parts of the world, who if you tell them we're going to get back to normal, that's a very appealing thought to a lot of people. It's not appealing to everybody, but it's appealing to a lot of people to get back to normal. And uh, Trump is, if nothing, he is not abnormal. And uh, <laughs> the what the COVID thing did is it really crystallized you know, for want to, to perhaps to be too polite, his limitations. It really crystallized the limitations of his, quote, style of leadership. And uh, I didn't know that was going to happen. But my instinct was, is that between January and November of 2020, 
enough things would happen that would wear people down to where people would say, you know what, this was an interesting experiment, but uh, we just need to... Now, Jim, what would have to happen for you to change your mind? What kind well, of a data point would give you the data that you'd say, well, I oh, think Trump the might be winning? started to change significantly. Okay. I think, look, the other thing is other events can happen that could help Trump. I don't know what they would be, but it's certainly possible that events can happen that could, you know, re- well, don't you think that Trump is planning something that's going to happen no. like in October or something like that's what? going to either I make mean, Biden you know, look really bad, like something's okay. going to get released, like a sex tape okay, or, people or, say, or, people, or some international okay, s- s- people you know, scandal? Say, okay. First of all, I got to point out to you, I know you don't like hearing about history, John. People always expect the October surprise. That has been a recurrent theme and discussion in presidential election campaigns going back to the 1960s. And when has it ever really worked? These things happen. In ni- right before the election in 2000, the, the records were released showing that George W. Bush had been convicted of drunk driving. That was the October surprise. How did that work out? He said, you know, I'm These sorry. things often happen, that there's some leak. <laughs> Remember the the Access Hollywood tape release. That was that, you know, that was right. thought to destroy yeah. Trump's chances. How did that work out? Right. Boy, um, that feels like ancient he, history. He I know, but it. remember at the time, people thought that was it. That's the straw that's going to break the camel's back, right? Well, Jim, so Jim, do you think the Trump presidency is just an anomaly or is it, is there something, <laughs> wow. I mean, it was just, it it's was a huge just question. through luckily, or is this actually representing something real. And I, the two things that real, it seems to me, seem to be, resonate with what Shelley said is there's a connection with voters about an America first thing, that kind of more nationalistic fervor that we haven't had in a, in a, in, over the last X number of years that we've been growing globally. And maybe, I don't know, a perception that the economy is doing better or maybe reality the economy is doing better. Um, are, is, there, is, there, is there something real underlying it or is it just an anomaly? Let me answer the question by saying, yes, it's an anomaly. and No, it's not an anomaly. And let me explain it to you this way. Trump himself is anomalous in the sense that he is a uniquely unqualified, uniquely corrupt individual. He doesn't really understand what he's doing. He's basically a very ineffective president. He's been very ineffective at pursuing his own agenda for the most part. Okay, I mean, he said a lot of terrible things and he's tried to do a lot of terrible things. But most of the terrible things he's tried to do, he's been ineffective at doing, which is probably a good thing. It's not anomalous in this sense. Look, Britain is governed by a majority that's based largely on the Brexit idea. In lots of countries in Europe are run by conservative, somewhat nationalist majorities. In France, there's a very popular rightish movement. And in most of those countries, there's popular rightish movements. Clearly, this sense of nationalism, of tribalism, whatever you want to call it, is a real phenomenon that Trump tapped into. That's a real thing. It hasn't gone away. It still exists. It's still a significant share of the vote in the United States of America. It's obviously stronger in some sections of the country than it is in others. I think that's true in Europe as well. But that has not gone away. A different candidate tapping into that sentiment might be a very effective candidate for the Republicans this year. Okay, Trump himself has certain liabilities that don't necessarily come with the political opinions he espouses. Right. I mean, that has not gone away. And the notion that getting rid of Trump solves all of that or makes all of that go away I don't buy into it all. So the point Shelley's making about the support that there is a broad support for some of these ideas, uh, nationalist ideas. I mean, even in some and again, I want to be clear, I'm not equating the two, even in some of the stuff Bernie Sanders supports you know, could be classified as sort of nationalist ideas, i.e. the anti-free trade stuff. But the point is that, no, that there is definitely strong sentiment for that, and that exists. To me, 
And this is why I felt that it was important for the Democrats not to nominate someone too far to the left, because I think if you made it a clear clash between the left and the right, you significantly enhance the chances of the right wing candidate, even a right wing candidate as deeply flawed personally as Donald Trump of winning this election. But There's a lot of people, for example, who are concerned about immigration, but they don't like Trump calling people racist names, okay? There's a lot of people who think they like conservatives on the Supreme Court, but they don't think that the president should necessarily be doing all sorts of corrupt things. There's a lot of people who think that, you know, maybe that we've been too willing to send troops overseas for reasons we shouldn't, but they don't necessarily think, you know, we should be, you know, politicizing the military and, th- and the justice. Well, part. I, so, and I have a question about that corruption piece, because yeah. I do wonder, it's so obvious to me, things that he's doing that seem so obviously corrupt. I mean, Shelley, do you think that the average person, if, if you know, if Trump's going to win, that that corruption plays just that perceptions of corruption just don't play a role in their decision when they're voting for him? Or do you think that they're just like, we don't care because it's government, it's all stupid anyway, and we don't and we don't think it really works and we think that's it's there's no point. Well, I think that there's a level of corruption throughout the government, throughout people <laughs> in politics. It's right. the overtness and the outward facingness that I think we're seeing so much more of with the Trump. Part of it is just, I think he's so much in the media to his own detriment. But I also feel like pe- people are going to, could easily dismiss that because of the XYZ other things that he is doing to make America great again, which might be where they're more supportive of him, even though his means to get there might not be perfect or the way that it has been done in the past. I could see a group of people believing that. I feel like back to your, not to change the subject, but back to your original question, John, of the media strategy. I feel like Trump has used media across the generations in ways that certainly Biden has not, you know, particularly Trump's overuse of Twitter. But I think the overriding tactic that he has taken, which is not new, is um, he's really tapped into like the industry of outrage, like taking the approach of controversy. And this isn't unique, you know, Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity. I mean, there's all these other people that have really become super wealthy, say inappropriate things, have very strong values and um, opinions that tap into the, that are controversial. And that gets attention. And that attention might be positive, it might be negative, but any attention is uh, more than what they had before versus Biden not having any attention, not getting out there, not, you know, and I feel like that's where Trump has utilized the media to his advantage, pointing out some of their failings, but also using it in a different way than I think we've really seen very many other presidents or president-elects use it. I want to say two things about what Chile said, because I think it's very astute for the most part. I would also say that in addition to it not being unique in the sense that other people have done it in this country, just look at Boris Johnson in in Britain. I mean, basically, there is someone whose whole career was based on sort of outrageous things to get publicity for himself. And now he's, you know, head of the government there. So it's not unique to the United States. It does happen. I will say, on the other hand, the problem with Trump and clearly even the people who work for him and want him to get reelected will say this, although not on the record, is that ultimately an effective media strategy requires a certain amount of discipline and Trump lacks discipline. And so frequently he messes up his own message by getting into these ridiculous pointlet fights that detract attention for stuff that might actually be good news for him. Uh, it, do, it not only distracts sometimes from the bad news from Trump, it also distracts from the good news for Trump. So 
there's a lot of truth to what Shelley says is Trump himself is a very imperfect messenger for the message. The message he has resonates with a lot of people on that. You know, we still remain a very divided country. And in fact, we remain a world which is very divided generationally, racially, socially, economically, culturally, however you want to say it. And that's true throughout Europe. It's true in the United States. And, you know, that's not going to be fixed or solved by one election, for sure. It's not even probably going to be solved by several elections. It's going to, you know, it's going to take time for that, those gulfs to be bridged. But uh, if at all. Well, if ever. Jim, do you think that the Trump voters are more enthusiastic about voting for Trump than the voters that are enthusiastic for Biden? Do you understand? Yeah, I, I think yes, but I think that the number of people that are hugely enthusiastic fans of Donald Trump outnumbers the people that are hugely enthusiastic fans of Joe Biden. Absolutely. On the other hand, the number of people that hate Donald Trump and will do anything to get him out of office vastly outnumbers the number of people that hate Joe Biden. Okay. So Thanks. you're right. If it were just on, if only the people who felt strongly, positively about candidates voted, Trump is going to win this election. But a lot of people vote for negative reasons. Okay. The number of people who Jay. are angry and hate Trump, I yeah. mean, Joe Biden is pathetic and kind of, you know, a loser, <laughs> to use some <laughs> Trump-type language. I mean, he's kind of like your grandfather who's not completely, you know, all that great to start with, and he's not as great as he once was. Because you ain't black. Who hates Joe Biden? How many people hate Joe Biden? A lot of people hate Trump. But it's hard to hate Joe Biden because he's like your your grandfather that's in the third stage of dementia. I got Why would you. you that's hate what that I person? <laughs> but think about this. A lot of people, and I think unfairly, but a lot of people hated Hillary. And ultimately, you can say that a big part of the reason why Donald Trump, Donald Trump wasn't popular when he got elected, but he had the advantage of running against another candidate who was very unpopular as well. It's going to be very hard, I think, to get Joe Biden is going to probably say some idiotic stuff. But I think it's going has. to be very hard to get Joe Biden to be as hated as Donald Trump between now and unless uh, unless a sex tape comes out. Well, so what? You, well, you then really you're going to get all the women who care. You know, people that Trump's got so much, you know, he's got the Stormy Daniels. He's got access Hollywood. He's got all this stuff. I know. What could Biden have possibly done that's going to be worse than Trump? Well, there, I think the difference they, is Biden has the grandfather fatherly persona. And, yeah, you know, with the grandfatherly persona in a sex they're scandal. Not held to I the think same standard is your point, They are not. They are no, not. But, Everybody but I mean, knows Trump's reaction asleep. to the Tara Reid accusation. You know, that was going to be the thing that, you know, a lot of the Bernie Sanders thing, people thought that was going to be the thing that was going to take Joe Biden down. It didn't work because why? Because people are like, don't care. Trump's done worse stuff. Don't care. Yeah. Right. There are a lot of That's people. True. If you read the articles, it's incredibly said, depressing I it. conversation. You did do it. Trump's <laughs> done worse stuff. It's such an incredibly depressing conversation because we're basically talking because this. There's absolutely nothing of interest to me in this, in the sense that it has it has it says nothing about where we want to go as a country yes, or we no. want to go not where Trump is taking it's, us. It's all we want to do is we want to somehow resist something that we we want to reject something that we don't like. It's just, and I unfortunately feel like that is what American politics has become. It is just a politics of rejecting the thing we don't want and being unable of our in, incapable of articulating what we do want. That's not true. That is, uh, that's and not that is true. probably that, the case. That just oh, happens to be purely what your argument is that here. Is it's for just purely this particular that we're just election. That is for this particular election. But yeah, that big wasn't one. the case <laughs> eight years ago or 12 years ago. I, I don't know. Well, I do think, okay, so I think you could read the last election as a big picture rejection of globalism and that Hillary Clinton represented globalism, the idea that we yeah. are one big world and we can all trade and be happy okay. together, and that Trump's election was a rejection of that with the, the and the growing okay. nationalism. Here's a flaw in you your could, argument. And I guess you could Wait see that minute. as a Wait big a picture can thing. I, I didn't finish. Wait, I, mean, I didn't okay, finish. Ahead, I didn't finish. finish. So, no, so, I, so I just think that I think you could read it that way. but. 
even then, I feel like the people who voted for Trump, they they didn't do it because of like some big picture idea about how they think of where they think America should be going or where the world should be going. They did it for narrow concerns, which maybe is the nature of politics. All politics are local and that you you vote for your, you know, your bank account and your whether you feel better this this year than this election cycle than last election cycle. But it to me, it still is not a very it's not a very it's, it doesn't have a it doesn't have a vi- there's no vision attached to it and 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 Jim I'm thinking of Eli Kaplan who we interviewed on this podcast or the old podcast yeah. of what at this point two years ago and I remember mentioning something about the word vision when we talked to him and he's a Democratic pollster and and he he basically changed the subject and it, it became obvious to me that it was like so ridiculous to even talk about vision because that has nothing to do with elections that's, but no, I do think I and, that, I, and that's why I think it's incredibly sad I don't this think conversation. That's, I don't interpret it that let me say let me say four things about what you said, and I'll try to say them quickly. First of all, your argument about a big picture rejection of globalism is undercut by the fact that more people voted for Hillary Clinton than voted for Donald Trump. Now, because of the Electoral College, she didn't win, but that sort of undercuts your argument. But I will say for this argument, clearly a lot of, and not just in the United States, in Italy, in France, in England, in Germany, wherever you want to say, there is strong sentiment against globalism. And that remains the case. Yeah. I, it's not overwhelming. It's not 90% of the electorate, but it's maybe close to 50%. And sometimes it's yeah, a little bit yeah, more yeah, than 50%. Yeah. I get it. And all of them are wrong. I mean, all of them historically, I think we're wrong because everyone was better off. Everyone is better off today than they were 100 years ago, 50 years ago. Yeah. And globalism honestly <laughs> probably wins the argument of inevitability, which means that no matter how much you complain about it, how much you try to do it, you can't ultimately prevent it. It's like trying to hold back King Canute, trying to hold back the tides. That's the second thing I wanted to say. The third thing I wanted to say is I don't interpret what Eli said is that vision doesn't matter. I think that we're looking at particular circumstances. I think, for example, it would be hard to say that the 2008 election wasn't about vision, and to some extent, the 2012 election wasn't about vision, and that there was a lot of people that were voting for Barack Obama affirmatively, positively, enthusiastically. And I think that that, you know, given different circumstances and given different people, that will happen again. I think I'll say this. I think there were a lot of people, not enough people, but a lot of people were very excited to vote for Hillary Clinton because of who, what she represented. There weren't enough people that were felt that way, but there were a lot of people that were enthusiastically voting. I think this time it is. I defensive. think it's a defensive think, vote. Huh? I think it's, it's a, a defensive, defensive vote, vote. And I think honestly, the Democratic primary electorate said, you know what? We're we're taking the lowest common denominator, the least objectionable alternative, and putting him out there because one thing we do not want is for Donald Trump to win this election again. All right, Shelley, you get the final word. I think it's up in the air. I I don't know, despite all of the pros that Jim has placed um, or, or stated and this current situation, I don't really think that one candidate is ahead of the other and time will tell in November. I think one can I think one candidate's ahead, but you're right. Time will tell. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's do recommendations. First, who wants to go first? I'll go first. All right, great show. So, um, as we, we might recall from the last podcast, I got a library card so I can now listen to books on tape <laughs> since the library is not open. And I have been going through books like crazy. But I am almost done with a book by Eric Larson called The Splendid and the Vile. And this is, it was a New York Times bestseller. It's by Eric, yeah, Eric Larson. He wrote Devil in the White City which is a, about a mass murder going on same time mm-hmm. as the World's Fair in Chicago. So mm-hmm. it's kind of cool since some Great of the book. structures are I still there. Book. I read that book. And yep. then his other book that I read a bit more recently is Dead Wake, which was the crossing of the Lusitania that was sunk that in 1915. Love that book, sunk by German torpedoes. This book is about Winston Churchill during the Blitz. And it just talks about his, you know, becoming prime minister and his dealings with how he's handling all of that and his family life, as well as interaction with President Roosevelt and all of what's happens 
in his little secret circle. And I'm really, really enjoying it. So I highly recommend The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson. Excellent. Great. My recommendation is read closely. I am reading, I'm rereading Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility uh, for reasons involving family and just coincidence of time and place, but I am loving it. And I'm realizing what an effect she has had on, she had on me when I was younger and how much she still has on me when I both write and read, because I just love the way she luxuriates in sentences with complex diction and syntax and, and in some ways, very diplomatic use of words to make her points. And uh, I've just realized that what I need to do And I think maybe law school destroyed it in me because it made me read so superficially and tawdry because legal writing is typically so horrible that now that I'm I'm, I'm back reading, I'm paying very close attention to sentences. So I encourage everybody to do the same. It's a great one. Okay. So I'm going to take Peg's role this week and say that I forgot to bring a recommendation. Uh, No, (laughs) seriously, seriously, seriously. What I want to say is... My recommendation is, as restaurants reopen, I encourage people to go to restaurants where they practice the social distancing policies. And when you're at those restaurants where they practice social distance policies, whenever you go to those restaurants, leave an extra large tip. Because the people who work at those places, who for some cases have been completely out of work for several months now, are going back to work, are going back to work at restaurants that are not going to be serving at the same capacity they were before. And they depend on those tips. And so try to make it up by leaving an extra large tip. And they're also just risking getting COVID more than other people. Right. That's an excellent recommendation, Jim. I've been over tipping on my... Uber Eats that get delivered here occasionally because for that reason. These people are really trying yeah. to hustle and make a yep. living in, in tough circumstances. So, excellent. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Great. Okay, who's going to take us home? Uh, I don't know. You are. <laughs> I am. John, oh, okay. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everybody. If you have not yet subscribed to the to the new feed, this is our first episode that's being released solely on the new feed. Make sure you go to insertjournalargument.com and you can uh, you can click on any one of your favorite uh, podcast servers. <laughs> Google Podcasts is now up and running, so we're on there. But of course, uh, and one of the my favorite places to find us nowadays is on Spotify, which is just really doing a good job um, promoting podcasts generally. We're also on Stitcher, and of course, we're on Apple Podcasts. Podcasts, which is the kind of granddaddy of them all and which still kind of determines our future um, in, in many ways. Uh, so if you like the podcast, we'd love for you to give us a rating or even more uh, more valuably, tell somebody about us. And uh, we obviously love your feedback. So give us any kind of it. You can give us an email, send us a text, send a, or, or just flat out call us and go old school. Uh, you can even FaceTime Jim. He'll pick up. And um, we would love to hear from you. And we'll look Definitely forward to hearing FaceTime you. Definitely FaceTime me. And uh, we'll hear from you in, in uh in uh, maybe a fortnight.